0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the Middle East Center, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to join us for a special celebration tonight. The Middle East Center often has occasion on a Tuesday evening to invite authors to talk about their books. We take it as part of our mission to be exposing our community to the very latest word that's come out of scholarship in our field but it is a particular celebration when we are celebrating the publication of a new book by one of our own fellows. And for 19 years now, well, nearly 19 years now, <laughs> since he was appointed the inaugural, let me get this title straight, <laughs> His Majesty, King Mohammed V Fellow in Moroccan and Mediterranean <laughs> Studies. <It's>, uh, <laughs> this is regal. Michael Willis has been at the very heart of the Middle East Center. He came to us with a remarkable pedigree, from his BA at Reading, where he had the privilege of studying with a future colleague, Avi Schleim, his MA at the LSE, his PhD at Durham, where he worked with our colleague, the legend, Tim Niblock, Michael served for seven years as professor of politics at El Ahouen University in Morocco, where he learned as much about the politics of Morocco as he was able to teach to his very fortunate students, who've been very loyal to Michael down to the present day, many of them still in touch with him as I speak. At the time of his appointment, Michael already had published his first major single-authored book, The Islamist Challenge in Algeria, A Political History which came out in 1997. Since taking up his Oxford post, he's produced his magisterial study of politics and power in the Maghreb, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, from independence to the Arab Spring, which came out to much celebration and fanfare in 2012 here in Oxford. So it is Michael Willis's third single-authored volume that we celebrate tonight. Algeria... Politics and Society from the Dark Decade to the Hirak. Few scholars have enjoyed the privilege of studying the politics of Algeria up close from within the country itself. It is one of the distinguishing features of Michael's work in producing this book that it is based on field work conducted in the country, very much in keeping with Michael's approach to political science to talk to the people and to walk the ground where it happens. This book, Algeria, is something of a sequel, bringing up to date the political transformations that have gone on in the country since the dark decade of his first book, studying the Islamist insurgency that tore government and society in Algeria apart right through the 1990s, up to the Hirak, or the popular uprising that continues to challenge politics in Algeria today. So with that knack for writing the book that we all want to read to better understand a country that remains one of the most important countries in the North Africa and Southwest Asian region, the biggest country on the African continent, a country whose tortured history and secretive politics has made it a subject of perennial fascination to us all. Blow me down if it's not Michael Willis who gets the book out first. To share the findings of his research and to get us off to a proper celebration, I'd like to hand the floor over to Michael Willis. Will you please join me in giving him the biggest St. Anthony's Middle East Center welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much, Eugene, for an extraordinary kind introduction, and for giving a, a background to some of the things I've done, which has been wonderful. But thank you very much, and thank you for for arranging this, and thank you. I want to thank my colleagues at the Middle East Centre for inviting me to, to give this talk today and talk about my book. Probably better get my glasses on. We'll get a very different talk if it was without my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Rather shorter, I imagine. Um, and I think having, having stood, as many of you will know, um, at this podium on a very regular basis, introducing over the years other people to talk about their books, it, 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 it therefore feels rough, slightly surreal, but very nice to be finally talking uh, about my own book. So thank you very much for, for arranging this and inviting us. So why have I written this book? Well, I think we can really break this down into two things. Why have I written a book on Algeria? And why have I written this particular book on Algeria? I'll, I'll try and say a little bit about both of those things to explain what I've tried to do with this book. So, why a book on Algeria? Well, mainly to try and explain something about a country that is perhaps one of the least known, and thus understood in, in the Middle East and North Africa region. Now, this unfamiliarity extends not just to the, the general public, but also, I think, to academia, including people who work on the wider region of the Middle East uh, and North Africa. Those of us who work on Algeria will be familiar with a rather sort of quizzical look that crosses people's faces when you tell them that you work on Algeria. People often remark when you tell them that you work on Algeria that they have seen and appreciated the film The Battle of Algiers. (laughs) And then they usually mumble something about Franz Fanon. Um, And then the look becomes sort of even more quizzical when you tell them that you work, as I do, on Algeria since independence, since the end of French colonial rule. And then when I say that, it's usually ventured that they say something like... um, didn't they have some problems there in the 1990s? <coughs> uh, yes, they did, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Now, I think that this sort of sense of unfamiliarity is frequently fed by how Algeria is often described in journalistic coverage of the country, even by those familiar with Algeria or, indeed, from Algeria. The adjective most commonly used, I've often found, when talking about Algeria's <coughs> political structures and our dynamics, especially at the elite level is opaque. Everything is opaque. Opaque this, opaque that, opacity. Opacity is the noun from opaque, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, is a very regular uh, description. Tellingly, almost every journalistic account of politics over for the last few decades has contained the word secret in its title. The secret history of independent Algeria. Bouteflika, the secret history. The secret history of the fall of Bouteflika. There's a lot of secret. It's a very secret country. It was remarkable. I found even more ones that I didn't even know about. They all have secret somewhere in the title. (laughs) Thus there is this sense that Algeria, and particularly its politics, are not just little known, but also hidden or even somehow sort of unknowable. Indeed, (laughs) I was uh, intrigued and, uh, and amused to see a comment on social media Uh, when my book was released uh, a few months back. And the comment said, and I quote, I have not read this book, but it is certain it is going to be full of mistakes and errors, (laughs) because no one really knows what is really happening in Algeria. (laughs) And, And this was from an Algerian. And this is common, both of you familiar with Algeria. Well, some people might say that, well, perhaps Algeria isn't well known and can remain opaque and secret because maybe it's not really that important. Now, I obviously would beg to differ. And I want to give you a few statistics to illustrate why Algeria is important and why it matters to try and find out what is happening there. So here are a few other things, just some headlines. Algeria is geographically, I think Eugene mentioned this in his introduction, Algeria is geographically the largest country in the Middle East and Africa. It's the 10th largest country in the world. It has the second largest population, 45 million of any Arab. Please notice the, uh, the quote marks around Am- Arab for my Amazigh friends. <laughs> yes. um, Arab state, second only really to Egypt in terms of population in the Arab world. It is not only not small, but also not remote or unconnected. It is only 100 miles from Europe. Several million Algerians live in Europe. In, uh, and it is one of the largest arm- armies in Africa, crucially for current times, it is a significant producer of oil and especially gas. So a major objective, really, in writing this book was to try and introduce Algeria and its politics to a broader audience. This book is really for a broader audience, people who aren't familiar, not necessarily people who know Algeria well, but those people, again, to which it's always been unfamiliar for the sort of reasons I've just mentioned. And therefore, somehow, and I hope it can make (coughs) Algeria a bit less opaque and a bit less secret, and this is what the objective really has been of a book. Algeria is not an easy country to do research on or do research in, but because it's it's difficult, in my view, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Sometimes often we we end up not doing things because we can't do them perfectly. The book is imperfect, but I wanted to do something to fill this gap about this country. So that's the first question, why a book on Algeria? So the second question is, why this particular book? Well, I wanted to write something on more recent history and developments. I had written my first book and the PhD thesis on which it was based, which Eugene very kindly referred to, on Algeria, which substantially focused on the tumult and conflict of the 1990s. And I therefore wanted to look at the period since then. I decided to focus on examining politics of the last two two decades and not because of the the sort of neatness of it coinciding with the turn of the millennium and the, the last two first two decades of the 21st century but because the end of the 1990s and beginning of the 2000s saw three developments in Algeria in the areas of leadership, economy and society that, in my view really recast the political landscape in Algeria and I wanted to look at that. So what were these three things? Firstly and most obviously was the election of Abdelaziz Bouteflika to the presidency of Algeria in 1999. This was a position that he would hold for exactly 20 years until his enforced resignation in April 2019. Bouteflika had been Algeria's foreign minister throughout the 1960s and 1970s and had been brought back to try and rekindle a sense of optimism and stability of that period after the 80s and 90s of the, the upheaval. So that was the first change, Bouteflika becomes in his presence. second change was the perceptible decline in levels of violence that had been a major feature of the 1990s. Algeria had experienced a prolonged and bloody civil conflict in the 1990s between the government and armed Islamist groups following the cancellation and abandonment of elections in 1992, but an Islamist party, the Islamic Salvation Front, had been poised to win decisively. The conflict claimed tens of thousands of lives, we're not even entirely sure how many lives, but it was certainly tens of thousands, by some estimates hundreds of thousands. It's difficult to know. But the violence associated with began to de- decline quite perceptively towards the end of a decade and especially after the turn of millennium into the two thousands. That was the second factor. The third factor that changed at the turn around the turn of millennium, and I believe was probably the most important was the steady climb in the <coughs> international price of oil. That began in the second half of 1999 and continued for well over a decade, increasing fivefold over time. So the revenues increased, you know, the price went up five times. This transformed, as you can imagine, the state finances of, of the Algerian state, which had long been heavily dependent on the country's oil and gas resources. Collectively, these three developments leadership, society, and, uh, and economy allowed Algeria to make something of a break with the tumult and turmoil of the previous two decades, the 80s and 90s, which had witnessed financial crisis, uncertain and changing political leadership, and most prominently, of course, the the, the bloody civil war or civil conflict. I therefore really intended this book to be both an an account and analysis of this reconfigured political landscape, notably about how a country emerges from a serious civil conflict. And a lot of that is in the book is trying to explain what happens um, in, a, in a civil war in this way. To this end, three chapters in the book are dedicated to these themes of leadership, economics and the decline of the armed conflict. Uh, chapter two looks at elite politics, uh, examining the impact of Bouteflika's presidency from 1999, notably his battles to assert himself against the military leadership, the leadership of the intelligence services, which are a security service which is very important, in Algeria. Chapter 3 examines the decline that occurred in the 2000s and the levels of violence associated with the civil conflict of the 1990s. It looks at how a ceasefire and an amnesty were negotiated with the less hard line of the armed Islamist groups. It explains the initiatives taken by President Bouteflika to bring an end to the conflict through the granting of these amnesties. And also legal protection was granted to members of the army and security services. Finally, Chapter 4 addresses how the steady rise in the international oil price affected Algerian politics, not only through providing the state with resources to rebuild the country and dampen opposition, but also how it drew in a new class of businessmen into elite circles and deepened institutional corruption much later on, which became a real major feature of this period. Now, the relevance of understanding this period was further sharpened by marked changes that came towards the middle of the second decade of the new millennium, about roughly eight or nine years ago, um, in two of these three big defining things um, and features, but (coughs) at the start and much of a course of what I've outlined. Now, the first of these changes came in the field of leadership. In April 2013, President Bouteflika suffered a major stroke that physically incapacitated him as president to the point that he was rarely seen in public thereafter. Despite official assertions that he retained his mental faculties, his physical decline and advancing age indicated that his presidency was approaching its end, despite his securing of a four-, five-year term in office in 2014. He didn't appear in the campaign. The only thing he appeared to was to vote. That's the only thing he did in the entirety of the campaign. (laughs) Secondly, and this is the other change, and, and of much more long consequence, was the fall in the international price of oil, but occurred from the latter part of 2014, uh, losing more than 70% of its value in just 18 months. Although the long years of high prices meant that Algeria had a sizable financial cushion, you didn't need to be an economist to see that in continuing existing patterns of consumption and public spending, Algeria would eat through its reserves in just a few short years. Now this placed a huge dark cloud, not over, just over the Algerian state finances, but also future social and political stability. <coughs> over the previous decade and a half, there had been vast increases in state spending on, on salaries, job creation, housing, and infrastructure, funded by revenues from the um, oil and gas bonanza. These had made a significant contribution to the improved social and political stability Algeria enjoyed over this period. Now, the scaling back of these spending stood to potentially reverse these effects. And furthermore, and quite naturally, there were even fears that financial crisis might undermine the third pillar of this period that I described, which was the, the decline of the civil conflict. State spending had played a clear role, directly and indirectly, in securing the ceasefire of members of the armed Islamist groups. Generous official compensation had also helped soothe the anger <coughs> and resentment of victims and their families on all sides of the conflict, uh, and therefore some resurgence in these animosities that had caused the conflict of uh, the 90s might be expected from the ending of this sort of palliative of state aid, especially given that no systematic public recognition of the county of a conflict had ever occurred. There was no peace and justice commission in Algeria. The participants were simply amnestied and paid off on all sides, and told to forget about it and move on. Uh, one phrase we'd often use, and it wasn't amnesty; it was am- amnesia. We asked for. It works better in French. Amnésie and amnesty works better in French. Better <laughs> better. <laughs> the purpose, therefore, of this book, when research, when it began in 2015, was to attempt not to explain only to explain the account for the preceding pe- period, but also develop some perspective uh, on what the consequences of the new shifts would be with these changes. By the time the first draft of this book was finished in late 2018, no major shifts were yet detectable in the Algerian political landscape. Bouteflika was still alive and president, though he was rarely seen in public. Social and political peace and stability seemed to be holding, but the sense of political drift, absent leadership and impending financial crisis indicated that this soon might fray. Now, the weakness of the formal political opposition and organised civil society, something I explore in detail in Chapter 5 of the book, indicated that opposition and civil society would not be able to marshal the anger and frustration of the ordinary population, but would inevitably develop, especially when the financial crisis began to, to be felt. It seemed likely then, and this is my view at the time, that this discontent would soon manifest itself in unstructured, even anarchic and violent ways starting locally in a pattern, but had already been seen and developing across the country. Now, interestingly, popular unhappiness with the situation did indeed begin to express itself, but somewhat earlier (coughs) than expected, and in a way that few had foreseen um, or predicted. The emergence and flourishing of a mass protest across the country in late February 2019 seemed to take everyone by surprise. I remember receiving a phone call from a friend participating in a seminar and he was, had his mobile phone marching down the, you know, the main street in Algiers in a mass protest. It was the first thing I knew about and I had no idea about it. Um, the protest was specifically sparked by the announcement on 10th of February that Bouteflika would seek a fifth consecutive term uh, as president in office. And what were initially local protests rapidly grew, culminating in thousands coming onto the streets of Algiers on Friday the 22nd of February 2019. The organisation of these events came not from the opposition parties or established associations, (coughs) but rather initially through social media before developing their own structure and links through the weekly protests themselves. Uh, Largely leaderless, they drew their support from across uh, the ideological spectrum. Uh, Their central demands, expressed unambiguously through banners and chanted slogans, were first the departure of Bouteflika, through denying him a fifth term in office and removal of a wider political leadership and reform of the whole system. Uh, if, we see, if we see here, this was when he wanted a fifth term. And this became a fifth. And then there was a proposal, it was quite interesting, this dialogue began, there was a briefly a proposal that Butefleca would stay a little bit longer. So everybody came back with four, four plus with that ruled out inside. And every time there was a suggestion he ought to be a longer they would change it and say each time, no, this has not happened. It was also reform for the whole political system. I really like this from... This is right down in the centre of Algiers, if you know it, in front of the <laughs> This says, in French, general clean-up and it's non-recyclable rubbish and it's all the politicians in the, um, in the wheelie bin. Um, but they're saying that all of these should not be... Re- non-recyclable rubbish needs to go in the bin. So there's a big clean-up there. The humor in the protest was wonderful, as in, often in these cases. Pressure from the protest movement, which soon became known as the Hiraq, the, the movement in Arabic, led to Bouteflika's resignation as president, a member the dismissal, and frequently the arrest, prosecution, imprisonment of most of his key supporters and ministers over the months that followed. Here is two big prime prim- ministers, Ahmed Uyahia and Abdul malik Salal, who'd been, they basically kept on changing positions all the way through, and that's certainly most of the initial terms. I think up, they were up; they went up to about 40 years each, and they kept on coming in and out of court, but these were brutally um, two most um, important politi- um, prime ministers. Mm-hmm. Now, even more astonishing to outside, outside observers in particular was the near-complete absence of any violence from the protest, despite their enormous size and diversity. Now, the diverse peaceful and civic-minded character of the protests evokes unavoidable parallels with the early days of the mass protest movements that had flourished elsewhere across the Middle East, to North Africa, and which now and became known as the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprisings of 2011. But interestingly, uh, in 2011, it had very little echo in Algeria, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit moment about why that was the case. However, Algeria's movement soon distinguished itself in many ways from other earlier movements in the region by sustaining these trends over weeks, months and eventually even years that followed. Now such an achievement was remarkable in its own right in being able to keep going but it was of special note in a country but certainly beyond Algeria was, was widely known for a history marked by violence and bloodshed. Such a history encompassed not just the period of the civil conflict of the 1990s but the long struggle from independence from France, which had cost hundreds of thousands of lives. This had led to a widespread trend in many journalistic and, sadly, even some academic narratives of Algerian history, as one characterised by nearly unremitting uh, bloodletting and conflict, but had consequently forged a population that was somehow inherently predisposed to acts of violence when confronted with political crises and problems. Now, such narratives not only ignored the very particular and different contexts of the 1990s and 1950s, but also betrayed a, a dubious stereotyping and essentialising of a whole society. Now, the enduring peaceful nature of a protest movement that emerged in 2019 and continued for over a year in the first instance, this was not a, much longer than in the Arab Spring incidences, showed really how flawed these narratives of, of inherent violence were. Moreover, it was no accident or coincidence, but rather an undeniably explicit and conscious choice of those participating in the marches who made the peaceful nature of their protests uh, one of their two defining features, alongside the commitment to just keep on coming out every week and keep on protesting. Now, the conscious choice of the participants in the to actively reject and move away from a past experience that had been widely assumed to somehow define them Confirm their agency in the face of historical legacies, but they were supposedly powerless to, to resist. Indeed, the enduring commitment to a fully peaceful protest became a badge of honour for the movement. These were enormous protests, to think they were completely peaceful. Algerians' bitter experience of bloodshed and turmoil, rather than making them more prone to repeating it, had created a resolve to avoid it at all costs. Really a conclusion that should not be as, as, as surprising as it was to so many people. Now, in addition to their Pacific nature, another feature of the protests that took people, especially outside observers, by surprise was, was the fact that they actually happened at all. Now, Algeria, after all, had been markedly, as I mentioned, unaffected by the events of 2011, being the only country on the North African littoral that had seen the emergence of a mass protest movement of the sort that had shaken and secured the departures of the leaders of the countries to the Middle east, uh, Tunisia, uh, Libya, and Egypt. Even Morocco, further west, supposedly renowned for its stability, saw much larger and sustained protests than Algeria in this period. Why, then, having been strikingly unaffected by the uprisings of 2011, did Algeria then produce a mass movement just eight years later that bore significant similarity to those that occurred across the region, but in many cases was larger? and ultimately more sustained. Now, this poem, I, I find myself pausing slightly, because the question of why did Algeria see mass protests of 2019, in 2019 and not in 2011, is an essay question, but I now set pretty well every term to students. Um, so anybody who's taking my, taking my uh, option in future terms, I'll see you... Uh, lean forward and take notes. I won't give (laughs) any But I'll give you some hints and tips. If I see if it's reproduced, I'll know it, but I'll be flattered. (laughs) But however, I will address it. I think a number of things changed in the eight intervening years between 2011 and 2019. Firstly, in the realm of leadership. In 2011, in contrast to most of its neighbours, there was a noticeable lack of popular antipathy towards the head of state. Uh, Butaflika was widely viewed as having helped bring significant peace and prosperity to Algeria in the wake of the civil conflict in 2011 although suffering worsening health Bouteflik was still able to appear in public speak and provide visible leadership however the stroke he suffered in 2013 significantly debilitated him necessitating regular periods in hospitals in Europe and restricting him to only occasional public um, appearances in a wheelchair looking frail and often blank and confused. However, his continuation in role, visible debilitation, and diminishing number of appearance in the public led to questions as to whether he could really still be in control of the country, and if he wasn't, then who was actually running the country? The announcement that Bouteflika would seek a fifth presidential term thus ignited fears that this arrangement was continuing. Many Algerians felt humiliated by the fact they didn't know who was actually leading their country, uh, and that their formal president was not able to appear in public and meet foreign leaders and visitors, and moreover, and this was something that really rubbed, was increasingly represented at national events by giant framed photos of himself. Um, so, interestingly enough, they chose ones when he looked younger and better looking than when he was later on. And this was actually, he would appear when the president was supposed to appear. And in, in, in Algeria, this, this was uh, a sense of feeling of humiliation, that they were, you know, Algerians would say, what are we? We North Korea, that we have some sort of veneration of pictures of leaders. Or oh, God forbid, are we Morocco? That was the other worrying thing, <laughs> where, you have pi- where you have pictures of your leaders up everywhere. It did, however, lead the... Um, I, I want to show you one of my... Algerian cartoonists in the newspapers are some of the, the best and funniest cartoonists, and I wish I could, I could spend the whole evening showing you the cartoons, but they did some wonderful... But this particular one when Bouteflika started appearing just in, in portraits, is look at this one. Now, this is when Bouteflika retired. This is when um, Ben Salah was the interim president. And it says in French, Ben Salah takes the place of Bouteflika. So his, the place of his president is to be in a, in a portrait in a picture frame. <laughs> and if you notice, he's standing on a general because the army helped him into power. And he's getting into the picture frame because that's the place of a, uh, of a, of a pr- president. In other words, you don't have a normal president. You have to be, you're only in a, a, a frame. Corruption was another big thing that changed between 2011 and 2019. Like most countries in the region, Algeria had a long problem with corruption an almost inevitable result of the same people being in power for extended periods of time. However, what was slightly different in Algeria uh, was that corruption had increased notably in the years up to 2019. One of the main factors why President Bouteflika had been popular and how he was able to help Algeria recover from the trauma of the 1990s was the substantial rise in the international price of oil soon after he became president. This gave the government substantial resources, as we saw, to rebuild Algeria, construct houses, and give jobs and subsidies to ordinary Algerians. However, the availability of large amounts of money led to increasingly corrupt practices. Wealthy businessmen who funded Bouteflika's successive re-election campaigns were awarded with huge government contracts and became key figures in the presidential entourage. Although enough money was spent to improve a lot of ordinary Algerians and and effectively eradicate poverty, knowledge that huge amounts of money were being stolen angered ordinary Algerians, especially as government spending began to be reduced with a fall in the price of oil. The the current president, doing an anti-corruption drive, announced this week that in somebody's private house in a town in the east, they'd they'd found, I think it was something like uh, 50... Five hundred, uh, but in terms of dollars, that's about thirty-six, $36 billion dollars. No. Were uh, I don't know if it was under the mattress or in a wardrobe or something, but they found it in somebody's house. And this Million, is sort of there.
0: probably not billion,
1: but it was billion, wasn't it? Oh, I billion, think it was billion. Yeah. It was billion. billion. But it was argued that this was exaggerated, but we're talking a lot of money, huge <laughs> amounts disappeared. <disability>, there. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I I had to do that calculation as well. And it's billion, it's billion. But that's just to give you an evidence of it. It was therefore not surprising that denunciations of corruption and calls for departure of specific major businessmen featured on banners and chants of protesters. Um, that's the equivalent of what we call in Britain the CBI, that's Ali Haddad. Yes, again, he's in his portrait now, this is what the Algerians were saying. We don't have a president, we <laughs> just do him in the portrait. And these are the prime ministers, and that's, um, that's the president's brother as well, the family had got in on the act. Another factor that explains why things changed between 2011 and 2019 was a, a very Algerian desire to not be in step with the rest of the region, which sounds rather strange, but it's, it, 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 I think, matters. Algerians, and I don't want to... I've got Algerian friends here to, to generalise, have a very huge sense of national pride and exceptionalism, uh, the belief that they are different from other countries. And although all countries have this to a certain degree, it is particularly strong in Algeria, uh, because it comes from a feeling of pride and distinction in having won their independence from France, and created their own country for an uprising that is against the odds and achieved at the uh, cost of great bloodshed. This has led most prominently to Algerians being hugely resistant to any form of foreign intervention or interference, and also a belief that Algeria has forged its own path, irrespective of other states. Thus, when popular protests erupted across the rest of the Arab world in early 2011, there was resistance among Algerians to the idea that they should merely follow their neighbours. In fact, Algerians were almost universal in asserting that they were not joining the Arab Spring because they had already had their own Arab Spring more than 20 years earlier when Algerians had come onto the streets in October 1988, leading to a partial opening up of the system that was ultimately shut down in 1992. Now, this was not empty rhetoric. The tale of popular protests, political openings, Islamist electoral victories and regime repression that unfolded in the late 1980s and early 90s in Algeria, uh, was one that had remarkable echoes in the events that unfolded across the region from 2011, especially in Syria and Egypt. In this way, Algerians like to think that the 2019 protests were not a late Arab spring, as some commentators like to argue, but perhaps Algeria leading the way in a second wave of popular protests against the authoritarian and undemocratic regime. So what became of the Hirak and and what are now the prospects for, for Algeria? Now, the Hirak was able to sustain its weekly mass protests for over a year and only suspended them voluntarily in March 2020 with the arrival of the COVID pandemic. They were successfully revived in February 2021, but by the spring had been obliged to spend once again in response to a renewed surge in the pandemic, but also due to pressure from the authorities. A campaign of arrests, intimidation, and repression of leading activists, together with a huge place presence on the streets of Algeria's main cities each Friday, has ensured that, that um, yeah. the Iraq has been unable to revive for a third time. This is a picture taken on one of the Fridays after it was cancelled. This is what one of the main streets. I'm trying to work out exactly. Does any? I'm trying to work out. Is this? If this isn't um, Mohammed Hamid, is it, or not? Or is it is. It is douche. It, I wondered if it it's do. Uh, one of the main street and this is every Friday. You wouldn't really want to go out and protest with that amount of police there. And this is all Albemarle. This is every Friday. I think it's is it still? of you know, it's still turning out these sort of these sort of numbers of police to stop people coming out and protesting. Just basically huge numbers of police on the streets. Not anymore. Not anymore. But this is in 2020, 2021. Although a significant presence, I've, my friends have been showing me still on the streets in many places. What happens next in Algeria is really beyond the scope of my book. My book was really to try and understand these, these first two decades. But what I can do is give some pointers <coughs> based on what I learned through writing this book about Algeria and its politics. Firstly, it's, it's the remarkable resilience of the regime and political system in Algeria, surviving a series of serious challenges since its independence in the wake of a departure from the French in 1962. An enormous financial crisis in the 1980s, Electoral victories by opposition parties, a large-scale insurrection, and most recently a mass protest movement. One of the facets of this, and part of the explanation of it, was the ability um, to change the regime's senior personnel, uh, including those at the very top, with minimal impact on the structures and exercise of power. The Hirak movement, for example, was able to secure the departure of President Bouteflika in twenty nine, followed by every single senior figure in the regime that had surrounded him for two decades. However, these figures were swiftly replaced from within the system with hardly an external perceptible ripple in the control and operation of the system. So you basically replaced the entire leadership with new people and there was, without a, with hardly a beat was missed, which is quite unusual and quite remarkable. The new, in reality, recycled figures who have now assumed the formal positions of power in the system show no real intent to replace or meaningfully reform the undemocratic and sclerotic power structures that they have inherited and which have become an established feature of the Algerian uh, political system. In my view, and I, I set this out in, in Chapter 2 of a book, this phenomenon illustrates one of the characteristics, features of the Algerian political elite, the lack of the importance of, of individual figures and leaders. In contrast to much of the rest of the Arab world, power seems not to reside in a few specific, sometimes individual hands, but in a set of institutional actors that change their leading figures with seeming ease. These institutions include the army, the intelligence services and the administration, but without one institution ever predominating for any sustained period, resulting in what one observer, Thomas Serres, has called a cartel arrangement of political power. However, these structures are profoundly unsuited and unprepared to deal with the future challenges that Algeria faces. The emerging consequences of these challenges, which we've been talking about, particularly on the economic level, strongly suggest that even though the Hirak movement ultimately seems to have been defeated by the state, other popular movements will take its place as Algerians seek to secure a better leadership for the state and a better life for themselves. Now, in Chapter 6 of a book, I've tried to get a sense of what ordinary Algerians, impossible, they just give, wanted to give a go, think about politics And I did it through combing through survey data I could find and cross-references with ethnographies and my own interviews and experience. And one noticeable feature that seemed to come through consistently in surveys uh, of a period that I have been examining was that despite a deep cynicism and alienation from formal political processes, Algerians seemed to retain a more profound optimism about the efficacy of political action more generally. There was still a belief that things could change and things could be uh, improved for the better, which, given everything has happened, is quite remarkable. And I think this demonstrates what I think is the profound and unusual resilience of the ordinary population. We talk about the resilience of the state, the resilience of the population, uh, even more than the regime, which has not only survived the huge trials and traumas of the past century, but has constantly surprised outside observers. Going back to the liberation struggle against the French, which it should not be forgotten, was launched with few hopes of success against one of the uh, a major world power, <coughs> continuing through the emergence out of a brutal civil war uh, and expressing itself peacefully in the, in the Heran. How, how do we explain uh, this resilience of the population to keep on coming back and keep on believing? Well, I think it lies in a very clear belief held by most Algerians but Algeria is a country that belongs to them, the ordinary people. The great slogan of the liberation struggle was one hero, the people. Again, no individual heroes. And it helps explain why individual leaders are so unimportant uh, in Algeria. In chapter 7 of a book, I look at some of the distinctive sub-regions of Algeria that have experienced significant political upheaval in the last two decades. Uh, Kabilia, the Mazab and the Saharan South. Now, one striking thing about these very distinctive regions is despite being very distinct and despite having upheavals and frequently enormous unhappiness with the central government, there are virtually no calls for separation uh, um, or autonomy from the Algerian state. Rather, there are demands for greater involvement and integration of state that pays them more heed notably through greater democracy and accountability. These regions don't say we need to separate, they say you need to give us more, we need to give us as part of Algeria, you need to do more for us. Indeed, I think it is this fervent belief among Algerians more generally that a better government and better rulers are what is owed to them after the sacrifices of the anti-colonial struggle of the 1950s and the horrors of the 1990s that may continue to surprise outside observers and may, one can only hope, one day bull bear full fruit. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. You've given us all a foretaste of the pleasures of reading your book. And you've really told us the gaps that the book is filling in terms of our understanding and the analysis of the transformations that has experienced in the course of the first two decades of the 21st century. And I think your explanations for why a hit act that happens in 2019 didn't happen in 2011. It's been fun being your colleague through this period because you've shared the jokes with us. And you take tremendous pleasure in the deployment of humor by the crowds that mobilized to challenge what they saw as the absurdity of a political order with a dead man at its head. And it's wonderful that they didn't deploy anything sharper than their wit in the demonstrations that they mobilized. So I guess the question that I have for you in light of Algeria's history of violent conflicts or independence or against the Islamist insurgency is what accounts for the fact that the regime itself did not turn to violence? Mm -hmm. That you had a peaceful response from demonstrators is remarkable, but we saw that in the Arab Spring too. And in many of the Arab Spring uprisings, it was the moment when the government turned on the people that the people took up arms. And what's quite striking in Algeria is that what had once been a very ferocious pouvoir mm-hmm. did not deploy its violence this time. Why do you think that is?
1: I think that's a, that's a very interesting question, and I think in many ways it learnt lessons like the Hiraq did. Mm-hmm. But where, where does this end up? The initial response since the 1990s had been to try and stop any protests. But I think there had been a ban on any street protests, in, 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 certainly in Algeria. And the way they dealt with it was just flooding the streets, as you saw with police, so people couldn't do anything. So in one sense, you don't have to be violent if you can't... It's like kettling, like we do in British um, policing here. And I think they did that, and they they thought they could could exhaust the Hirak. They wouldn't have to be violent, it would just run out of steam. Eventually, with COVID and gradual a bit more progression, it did run out of steam. But what we're seeing now is the violence of a regime in much lower level, but equally insidious ways. The numbers of arrests of people involved in the (coughs) Hirak, activists, people online. um, I I saw a a commentator say recently that the the regime isn't worried about the street anymore, it's worried about Facebook. And it's going through... Somebody said to me, you used to get in trouble (coughs) for posting things on Facebook, then you got in problem for retweeting things on Facebook, and now you're getting arrested for liking things on Facebook. (laughs) Uh, That's the sort of level. We're talking huge-scale... And it's really quite depressing what's happening at the moment with the repression of the political parties. The main human rights organisation, which has really held, uh, held a lot of the light of, of liberty in Algeria, is now being tried to be officially broken up by the regime. So the violence has happened subtly and effectively against the, the Iraq in that level. But it is notable it didn't use it. It tried in certain places, but the crowd resisted it. Um, so you did have these rather interesting standoffs. But the, uh, they were absolutely, the, the Hiraq movement were absolutely convinced that if they went to violence, then it would just unravel again. But it's interesting the regime also learned that as well. Exactly. Which is, it, 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 was, it learned the lesson of the 90s <coughs> as well, I think. They're both being involved. And this is the, this is the thing I, I hopefully can tell you to influence is you get this situation in the 90s where you get extreme levels of violence, both from the state and from the opposition. And then you get this peaceful movement where both have learned. And people say, well, actually, this, le- this, this led us nowhere, this went nowhere and trying some other crack. But ultimately, the violence of of people being beaten up and tortured in police stations, in prisons, and being arrested at home, this sort of violence is now happening, which is very depressing in Algeria.
0: Michael, one of the things that distinguished your work on this book was, of course, you did get to Algeria to do field work in the country. Mm -hmm. Could you just share us a little brief reflection on what it is like to be doing political research in Algeria and from your own experiences?
1: Yes, it was, it was great, I hadn't been able to, because of my, my PhD, I hadn't been able to go to Algeria and do field work in the 1990s, it was the height of the violence, but I was able to go this time, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity. As I said, Algeria isn't an easy country to do research in or on, visa, is difficult getting a visa, I can no longer get a visa to go to Al- Algeria, and that has been a restriction on a lot of people getting in. I was lucky, I had support, and I was able to get a visa and got four or five to go in. It's not particularly easy. It's not a culture where people are open to open up, and i would worked on the other two countries, I've worked on Morocco and Tunisia, where you'll you, you get a lot done much more quickly, people will talk to you. I mean, I, I, it is a common feature, particularly for foreign researchers a foreign researcher, you start to get a bit paranoid because you don't get very far. People don't talk to you, can't make interviews, you don't get much out. And I began to think that there was something wrong with me as a researcher after two weeks that I was finding very little out. And when I started talking to other researchers and I saw the experience from my PhD students, my DPhil students, and it was very similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you just, you carry on, and I found that it was difficult because you go and see the opposition, the opposition say, well, everything's a bit bad and we're really unhappy about it. And you go and see people aligned to the regime, they say, well, actually, it's not too bad, it's actually quite good, and that was more difficult. But it was, there's no, what I used it to do was just have ordinary conversations with people, get a sense of how people felt about things, a little clips in the book from conversations I've had with people just illustrating how things work. I also used it to try and gather, a big thing was to try and gather locally produced material written by Algerians, things that weren't being available outside Algeria uh, that, that could actually get out and to be able to use that. I think it's very important to uh, a general move in scholarship to move away from people uh, who aren't connected to the country. I wanted to get local voices coming through. And get us try and create a picture, uh, a picture of that. So it wasn't easy to do research there, but as I said, it's just because it wasn't wasn't particularly easy, it was, it was still worth doing. And I still found all sorts of interesting things out um, from my, my time there. Oh, I think it made a huge difference to the
0: work, and I think it's going yeah. to have it's going to ring true for the effort you made to go and do your work there. Well, Michael, in bringing this evening to a close, I speak on behalf of all of your colleagues in the Middle East Centre, and I'm pleased to see all six of us here tonight. Congratulations. You've done us proud. Thank you. Not only do you put a Middle East Centre on the map in North African studies, but as you've just done again with this book, you really put us at the top of the game. So we're all delighted. We're thrilled to see the book out in print and for encouraging such an amazing audience to show up tonight. And so, dear audience, in a word to you, celebrate. Come on upstairs and join us in a drink to continue the conversation with Michael. Grab a copy of the book for yourself. And just mix and mingle around in this beautiful building, so we can all enjoy tonight as a very special night. Now, please join me. Thank
1: you. Thank you all very much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you.